You're now locked in to the Pacific Northwest number one baseball podcast, bringing you the greatest stories of the Pacific Northwest and Southwest Canada. This is the Diamonds and Roses podcast, and here are your hosts, Ben and Travis. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Diamonds and Roses podcast. I'm your host, Ben, and we got my new sidekick kicking along with us for the foreseeable future. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, this is Travis Conway. You know, you're joining us now as a as a new host, and I'm excited to have you um, part of the Diamonds and Roses podcast, and it's going to be great moving forward with you, and appreciate you jumping on board. Uh, so thank you so much. No, no, thank you. Uh, first, let me just say also a thank you uh, for being in good health. I know you had a health scare recently. If nobody knows that Ben had a bit of a health scare, so. I'm glad you're better. I hope you still have the little scooter with the uh, frizzle, the whatever the. the it has scooter. a basket on the front <laughs> with oh, little glitter so stuff on the side and a ring. So my so the the in short, uh, uh, my so my, once my sister in law found out I had this knee scooter, I said, you know, if I could just get a little basket to put on the front of this sucker, like I could do so much with it. And then next thing you know, like showing up in the mail is this little like black in pink basket with a pink little ribbon on the front and then a little like one of them little bells that you can put on <laughs> things and then little tassels to go on the side and then I, so I took a picture of it sent it to her and she's like ring ring on your right yeah it's it's absolutely it's absolutely precious just like you yeah exactly well thank you so much for checking in on my health i'm doing better one day at a time but i did break my foot uh on christmas eve so that was pretty crazy and i'm just in the process of healing but without further ado we have an amazing episode uh this evening Uh, we're recording with a great out of oregon state university and the city of portland mr kevin gunderson how are you sir i'm doing great thanks for having me guys excited to be here yeah, it's great to have you uh, coming on this uh, episode of the Diamonds and Roses podcast. Uh, kind of a new year. We haven't done one in a little while. We uh, interviewed Murray Brown uh, recently, and it's been a little bit, and just reached out to you. And I'm like, you know, I saw a lot on Kevin, and I've been seeing some things that he's been doing with his academy and, and his business. And I'm like, I got it. You know, we got to get him on because I really want to hear more about him and his background. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a native Oregonian. I, you know, I just been out here for about the last 20 years. So I'm, I'm kind of getting into the groove of things and, and learning more and more about the state and more and more about the amazing baseball programs that are out here. And part of that whole entire process, it's been, you know, fantastic with this baseball podcast because we get to know people that are in the game, that have been in the game, that have played the game. And so been there, done that. And I'm I'm a sp- sports fan. I love baseball. I played a little bit in high school, but I'm nowhere near the talent that you were. <laughs> so um, well, and, and let me chime in real quick. So I, I, you know, as a baseball fan and somebody who watched Oregon State's rise um, and and even knew Pat Casey back in the George Fox days, um, this is definitely in the top ten for me. People I wanted wanted to interview. So thank you so much for coming on, but also just, um, uh, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but, but Oregon state is a baseball school and there are not many places in the country that you could say they're a baseball school. You could say a lot of football school, 
but a big reason it's it's a baseball school is because because of Kevin. So thanks for uh, what you did back then, uh, the grind, and uh, can't wait to start talking. Talk to us a little bit about uh, where you where you come from, Kevin. You were you were born in Portland. Yep. Yeah, I was born and raised Oregonian. Um, grew up kind of northeast Portland, over by the airport, and uh, sports were always, you know, something that I was very active in with my older brother, and um, you know, played all sorts of sports growing up. And it really wasn't until probably high school um, that I started to kind of figure out, like maybe maybe I have a chance to to go a little further than just than just high school baseball. Um, still played basketball four years at Central Catholic, um, and then was lucky enough to, to get a scholarship offer to go to Oregon State and, and then Oregon State and then professional baseball. And so very, very lucky. So talk to us a little bit about, because wanna, we want to take a deep dive. That's part of our, our history of doing this mm-hmm. podcast is taking a deep dive into that early history. You know, when you were growing up, one, what got you into baseball or who got you into baseball? Yeah, I come from um, kind of a, even though it was one family member, I mean, I have a lot of family members that played baseball growing up, but uh, my dad's youngest brother, um, my uncle is um, pitched parts of 10 years in the big leagues. And so growing up, my older brother and I, we are around um, that um, high level type of baseball. Um, and we were really, really close. And so kind of when I was eight, nine, 10, up until kind of 14, 15, um, he was right in the heart of his career. And so I was very lucky. My brother and I, we would go out to spring training every year, um, spend time with him and his teammates and his coaches, and we would learn from them. Um, we were very spoiled when it came to that. Uh, and then in the summertime, we would he would fly us out um, where he was playing, and we would stay. He'd always pick an extended homestand, um, and then there would be a short road trip, and then he would come back for a long homestand. And so it, it worked out really well, and we would go out there, and we would just stay with him. My parents would just put us on an airplane, and um, we would literally spend – nearly the entire day at the baseball field. And so I got a taste of um, what major league baseball lifestyle was like. Um, we had such a blast. And so that's, that's really where it started. So it was in my blood from a really, really young age. Did they, he give you a specific like inspiration on, on a position to play or what position did he play? Uh, he was a left-handed pitcher. So it, it worked out really well. My brother's um, right-handed. And so um like he, my brother worked with Billy Ripken uh, when my uncle was in Texas. Um, they were pretty good friends. And so uh, it was just a lot of fun. We'd go to the park midday and my brother would be doing infield stuff with, you know, infield coaches and Billy Ripken and Cal Ripken's younger brother and uh, older brother, I believe actually. And, um, and then I would work with my uncle and pitching coaches and different things like that. So I, I enjoyed playing uh, in the outfield, uh, but I, kind of had an idea as I was getting a little older, I wasn't very big. So it's not like I was going to um, be a very good hitter. And so um, pitching kind of, kind of made the most sense. So growing up, uh, who, who was your favorite team and who, who's one, uh, one player that stands out in your mind? I kind of, I'm a weird sports fan in the sense that um, like for all sports, like I like trailblazers. Um, I don't have a favorite NFL team. Um, I like watching football. I like watching basketball. Um, when it comes to baseball, um, I was really just a fan of whoever my uncle was playing on. So I didn't really have a set team. He was drafted by the Giants. Um, so for a little bit of time, when I was really, really young. I was a Giants fan, and then he went to the Mariners. So I was a Mariner fan. 
then he went to Texas. So I was a Texas fan. Um, and then he kind of bounced around from, from different teams and different teams. And so really it was kind of whoever he was with. And then from um, a pitching standpoint, I really, really loved watching Pedro Martinez pitch. Mm. I just thought he was uh, a bulldog and um, go right after guys and attack hitters. I just really liked his mentality on the mound. And, um, you know, Greg Maddox was fun to watch just because, um, you know, a little bit more of a feel guy and uh, had to kind of work himself around different hitters and, and carve guys up with, with relatively lower velocity, especially um, when we talk about the kids nowadays. Well, I love me Greg Maddox. I just love to watch him pitch. You got that inspiration from your uncle and mm-hmm. you got to go to spring training. How is that? Share that little bit of experience because just past spring, I got to go for the very first time myself. And then you said that your uncle played for the, was drafted by the Giants, played. And I got to go to that stadium. And on the outside, it doesn't look you know anything great. But on the inside, it's amazing. So what was that feeling like for you? It was fun. You know, it was... Um it was just, it was kind of our, our life. And so like we were around, you know, when he was in Texas, so when he was in Seattle, um, hung out with Ken Griffey Jr. and Randy Johnson and Edgar Martinez and Jay Buhner and those guys that just for us, we were younger. It was just like, a, I mean, you see him on TV, but, um, they were just, you know, another person that was next to you and it was fun. So when we were at, you know, relatively young age, I was never really awestruck, you know, it was just like, that was just my uncle's job. It was fun to hang around him and they were nice people and uh, went to Texas. I mean, he, you know, Ivan Rodriguez was his catcher and uh, Juan Gonzalez and Rusty Greer and Mark McLemore. He was neighbors with Mark McLemore and second baseman. And so it was just uh, the, the lifestyle is, it was really cool. You know, it was just um, first class, everything. He'd go in and clubhouse and, they got all the food. Here's the the dining room area. You can go get whatever food you want. They got huge snack deal. And so it was just, it was pretty fun for my brother and I. So obviously growing up, you, you had your uncle as an inspiration, but your, your mechanics, even early on from, you know, just videos I've seen were, I mean, they looked professional. So what, what influences did you have in high school or even before? I mean, you have to have pretty good trainers and like yourself, I mean, you're a trainer now who, who influenced you to be able to have the mechanics that you have? Yeah. I mean, it really goes back to my, to my uncle. We, um, you know, the way things are now with all these academies and different instructors, um, there wasn't, we didn't really have that growing up. At least I didn't know. My dad did a really good job of kind of taking what my uncle had taught me and just a very simple approach to pitching and just practice, you know, practice a lot in our, in our backyard and threw a lot to my brother and played a lot of wiffle ball and, and different things like that. I had great coaches growing up too, you know, people that they weren't in it to change me if they saw something maybe really small. I was really, really lucky to have a quiet sound delivery from a really, really young age. And so it was something that I worked on and worked on and worked on over the years. And uh, my delivery really never changed from the time I was little, eight, nine years old, all the way up until really I finished playing. I pitched literally the same exact way. So I had thousands and thousands of reps under my belt thrown that way. Was there one particular game, like in, I would say in high school, where it's just like a magical game that you can recall that you knew that uh, you were on another level? Yeah, I had a game. Um, we had a really big rivalry with it. I don't even know where it started. It started in football and carried into basketball and then carried into baseball with Centennial High School. And 
I remember pregame, we were at their place. Um, my senior year, I was warming up. I used to always jog the uh, foul pole to foul pole a couple of times just to kind of get some blood flowing and get loose. And they were in left field stretching. And I remember, and I played basketball, so we had a little some heated games with them back in the wintertime. And I remember reaching the left field foul line and um, they kind of started talking a little bit of trash. And I was a pretty fiery competitor and being a smaller stature, stature kid, I, I just... I really, when I got between the white lines, I just uh, switched flip that I was just like in competitive in competitive mode. And so they just started talking and they wouldn't stop. And I just remember looking at them and I just said, all right, like, just wait, you know, like just wait. And I, I was always focused for a game, but for some reason I just got hyper-focused on that game. Um, I ended up striking out 18 out of 21 guys. We had one catcher's interference, but I think the craziest part about that game is I struck the last 13 guys out in a row to end the game. And it was crazy. Like I, I was so focused on it. I didn't really realize what I was doing. Um, but I remember striking out the last guy. I don't, I just remember this game so vividly. I struck out the last guy on a, a right-handed hitter on a backdoor slider. And I remember just like, like just going, <sighs> just like screaming. And we were walking through the line after the game. Well, my teammates come running out. Like, do you realize what you just did? And I was like, yeah, we won the game. I think it was like a two nothing game. And they were at the time were really, really good. Um, and they could really hit, they had a really good offensive team. And I was like, yeah, we won the game. Like it was a close game. You know, I feel good that we won. And they're like, you struck out 13 guys in a row. And I remember going through the line after the game and they're like, Hey, mad respect, like mad respect. And it's crazy. Like two weeks later, we played them again and, and it was because of a rainout. And then two weeks later, I threw a no hitter against them. But the game with the 18 strikeouts was was pretty crazy. And most importantly, it's because I struck up the last 13 guys in a row. And I had no idea. I just got in this groove. And it was like I had a really low pitch count. because I was like three, four pitches every guy. I was just like to end the game. I was just like in such a groove uh, mentally and physically. I wish that more games like that were like that. Though. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> that's legendary. That's incredible. Very cool story. That's epic. What was the one pitch that was just working for you that day or was it multiple? Every, I had everything. I, I, it was weird. It was like wherever our catcher set up, I could throw it there. It was um, one of those games that you may get once in your career. Um, you may never get. Um, I mean, it was, I just saw weakness in certain, certain approaches and certain swings. And it, we just attacked it. You know, and our catcher, our high school coach, I had two high school coaches throughout my course of my four years at Central Catholic, but for the most part, they let me call my own game. Um, they had a lot of trust in in, uh, in my approach and awareness to what was going on. And so my catcher and I always had a really, really good relationship and a really, really good connection. And so it was just like pretty much everything that he put down, um, I I agreed with. And so it was just a game in and out. We just moved the ball in and out, up and down change off speed pitches. We had them off balance the whole day when they were looking fast play through slider. Um, when they're looking away, I threw in. So it was just, it was just one of those games where everything clicked. Talk to a little bit about how you were communicating at that point in high school with your catcher to make sure that you were on the same page, but that you were throwing something that this guy, you're going to get this next batter out with. Uh, you know, conversations before the game, we had played them before. So we kind of had an idea of their lineup and know who's, swings aggressive early and counts we know who's passive and takes pitches and um then as the course of the game it's just uh, it's just communication you know it's super super important in baseball and so after every inning we just we chat real quick if we needed to um about 
what he saw or what I saw. And then, so when the next inning came rolling out, um, we knew where they were in their lineup. We knew exactly um, what guys liked and what they didn't like. And so it was, um, and it's just as basic as, and I talk to kids that I train now, it's like, you have to communicate with your coaches and you have to communicate with your catcher. Um, super, super important. If you kind of hold it all in and expect that you're going to do it all on your own, uh, this game is, is not an individual sport. You're at this point probably being recruited pretty heavily. Tell us a little bit about who recruited you, if you don't mind, but also uh, how you got to Oregon State and, and a little bit of that process. Yeah, the process um, that I went through is so drastically different than the recruiting process now. Um, I remember uh, your junior year, uh, when I was going through the, the process, the junior, your junior year, your junior spring and junior summer um, was the most important year. Um, that was when everything was, um, was happening from a recruiting standpoint. And so um, I was getting recruited um, by a few Pac-12 schools, um, most notably Stanford and UW. Oregon State was obviously um, in the mix. And then um, Nebraska was recruiting me um, pretty hard for a little bit. I went to, um, Stanford's all-star camp, which they still have now. They have a younger version now, but I remember going, it was summer after, I'm trying to think here, summer after my sophomore year. So going into my junior season, um, and they, I had a really good camp and they were really on me. And that was kind of my dream school was to go to Stanford and, so Stanford and, and UW were kind of the big ones. And then Nebraska was um, was there as well. And then Oregon State kind of came in a little bit later. Um, I remember pitching in a tournament in Tacoma with Baseball Northwest. And somebody had told Casey, like, you have to get Gunderson. Like, it's just no questions asked. Like, if you don't, he's going to go to Stanford. Um, but this is a local kid that you want. Um, and then the recruiting process kind of started with Oregon State. I was not really on Oregon State for no particular reason. I was really set on going to Stanford, and I was just a hair short on my SAT. And I remember Stanford calling my parents and just said, hey, um, we'd really like Kevin. We're, he's really, really close. I think I had 1190 on my SAT. They liked it. They wanted to see it up just a little bit. At least admissions wanted to see it up a little bit. And immediately after that phone call, it was crazy. It was like all of a sudden Oregon State went kind of full bore. And really the deciding factor um, is a unique time where my class and the classes, the class ahead of me, a couple classes ahead of me, and then a couple classes right below me. And then below that, there was a ton of talented baseball players in Oregon. It was pretty remarkable. And the summer circuit and how everything is now is so different than what it was. We typically played with our high school in the summertime. And then we would hop on with baseball Northwest which as just a, as a supplemental deal. And so all of us, that ended up going to Oregon state all from the state in different classes were there for different grad years and stuff like that. We started talking and we're just like, you know, it'd be cool to all go to the same school. Um, and it just happened that Oregon state was going after those guys at the time. And it helped that Oregon didn't have a baseball team. And so I remember committing to Oregon state in August, right before my senior year, Pat Casey was out. We, there was a tournament at Oregon state with baseball Northwest and he was out on the field. And I remember, Tell my parents I'm gonna go let them know right now that I'm gonna commit to the bees. You know, I don't I don't regret it at all. I mean, I could have went taken the SAT one more time to see um, if I would have gotten Stanford, and who knows if I would have got it up just a tiny little bit, I it may have been a cardinal. And I remember going to the first game ever 
um, under the lights at Oregon State was Oregon State versus Stanford, and Stanford was ranked number two in the country. And Stanford actually invited me to the game. Oregon State did not. And Oregon State ended up beating Stanford in the first game under the lights at golf. And then everything changed from there. So attending your first year at OSU, um, how what was that whirlwind like for you? Because not only were you a student, but you were a student athlete having to play for uh, a good university when it comes to a baseball program. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was an adjustment for sure. First time, um, albeit, you know, an hour and 20 minutes away from home, um, still an adjustment being on your own and uh, full responsibility for your schedule. Um, you don't have mom and dad um, to wake you up in the morning to make sure that you're on time for weights or class or practice or whatever it is. And so it was an adjustment. I'm so appreciative of our upperclassmen um, had a handful of pitchers kind of take me under their wing. I roomed with an upperclassman on the road. And so it was good to kind of have them um, as guidance. And and they'd been through some rough patches at Oregon State where, you know, a little bit of success, but a lot of failure. And so I picked up on it pretty quick. I was a fairly disciplined kid. and But when you have freedom, you know, to be in college and stay up as late as you want and um, just got to be on time. It just took a little bit, but we got down there a little bit early and we were down there for fall camp, almost a full month uh, before school even started. So that actually helped out a lot that we had, um, we were down there to lift and and basically practice uh, before, before school started. And that really, really helped with that transition. Is there anything you would have done differently now, like then if you knew what you know now, starting that first year? I wouldn't have changed anything. I was completely happy with it. Which uh, which teammate was pushed you the hardest? Uh, Jake Postlewaite. He was um, our Friday night Friday night starter, left hander. He's a senior. Yeah, he for whatever reason I I don't really know. Maybe he's told me, but I just maybe have forgotten. But he um, I remember him just putting my arms around. He put his arm around my shoulder first couple of days and you know, just basically said follow my lead and. I think most importantly, it was came in just very humble and appreciative of, of the opportunity. And so, you know, some people come in a little bit cocky, a little arrogant, you know, kind of thinking, you know, they're the man. And when you get to that level, uh, there's a lot of good baseball players. And so they can humble you really, really quickly if you get too far ahead of yourself. And so I think it made that transition from high school to college, especially the division one level, feel so much more comforting. Jake Quiring, who Eugene Kidd also was on the team and, you know, an upperclassman and he took me under his wing as well. And so, and it was just like, Hey, follow our lead, be by our side and watch what we do. And and that helped out a ton. And I was, again, with my background, um, being around with my uncle, I kind of understood that side of the discipline and being on time and being respectful. And so it, my years prior leading up to Oregon State definitely helped me out a, a lot. I'm, I'm very lucky to have have the the baseball background that I did growing up. Did you mentor anybody in in a similar way? As I got more and more comfortable in in, in my role um, on the team, especially in being in the bullpen, I was in the bullpen all three years at Oregon State. So really, for the younger kids that that came up, I didn't have anyone you know necessarily specific, uh, one specific individual. It's just kind of the entire bullpen, and it was just showing them how to go about preparing um, for a week in the Pac-10 um, that it's grueling and got to have a routine and make sure that you're always ready, especially being out of the bullpen. You just never know 
Oh come on! You got you got to give us some names. You have you have super fans out there. Come on! You have you have Beaver super fans. <laughs> you got to give us you got to give us a name or a story or something. No, yeah, I mean you know Mark Gerbevac, who was a Central Catholic alum uh, after me. Um, Eddie Coons um, was someone that I grew up with um, over in the Park Rose area. There's two there's two names right there for you. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yep. Um, so I want to talk about and go in. You know, you you get your first year, you're you're, you're rolling along. How how is how are you thinking like mentally at this point between when you're going from high school to playing in the Pac-10 at a Division One level baseball? What's that mentality? What what's going through your mind at that time, and how are you helping yourself um, adjust to the situation? Yeah, I mean, I think you realize really quickly when you watch batting practice. Um, you know, with the bats that we used or bats that the hitters used were pretty hot. You realize really quickly, you're like, you know what? I, I have to prepare to go and face some of the absolute best hitters in the entire country. If you're scared, like our pitching coach always used to always tell us, if you're scared, go get a dog, you know, and, and you better get a big dog. Um, this He's like, this conference is, is not for the weak. Um, I realized that real quick. You, you got to go out and um, that mentality that I had in high school, um, I just carried over over to college. I always respected every single one of my opponents, but I also felt like, you know what? I always took the mentality. It's it's either me or the hitter, you know, and, and I'm the one that wants success because it's for my team. You go up and have all these negative thoughts like, oh my gosh, I'm facing this team, you know, I'm facing Arizona State. They're ranked fourth in the country. They can hit. Um, they've already beat you and that's what they want. And so it's, um, our coaches did a really, really good job of, um, of making sure that we were prepared. But most important, I think too, is like the kid, the, the players that we had down there when I was there, like we were gritty. We were mean. Like we, we just, we wanted the mentality of like when guys get off the bus, they're like, man, we're in a dog fight with these guys. And, and talking with, with guys that we played against um, when, when we eventually got into pro ball, that's exactly what they echoed. They're like, man, when you, we went to a Corvallis, like we knew we were in for a fight or when you guys came up, came to our place, we knew, that you guys are going to scrap for three days and just make it really, really difficult for us. And so it was, um, I just always had that mentality when I got on the mountain pitch, like I just, I wanted to win. And, um, as soon as I got over those white lines, I don't, something, something switched in my brain where I'm just like, you know what, I'm going to go and absolutely dominate my opponent in the most respectful way. Did you have a pregame ritual that, this is what you did every day before every game. Yeah. I always, left-handed pitchers are weird. I always, um, I always did stupid things like tie my left shoe first, you know, put my left shoe on first then my right and then tie my left shoe and then tie my right. Yeah. Just my warm up was always the same. I would sit in the same spot in the dugout. It's kind of always in the corner of the dugout. And I'd always kind of, start mentally preparing myself in the fourth, fifth inning and kind of see the flow of the game and how it goes. One weird thing. And I don't, I always, I did it from when I was young and I just did it my entire career. I had like the tiniest, the tiniest little tiniest gap where water can get through in between my two front teeth. Like can barely, can't even see it. But I used to sit, I put water in my mouth and I just put my hands and this is like kind of how I prepare. Like, and I would like gleek water like between that. And I just make a, little tiny little stream and I just make a puddle in between my feet. And that was kind of, I don't know, it's like my Zen moment, I guess. I did that before every single time I pitched. I don't know. That's left-handed pitchers were weird. So I always 
developed a routine. I always had a routine. Um, again, it goes back to, to my uncle assisting with that, but it always, that consistency and that routine allowed me to be very comfortable when I went out on the mound. There was no, no situation where I felt fear um, because I wasn't prepared. I always felt like I was prepared. Um, everybody has butterflies. Anyone that says they don't have butterflies before they play in a game um, is lying. Um, I'd get butterflies before every single game, but they, they quickly go away, you know, and you get in the moment, you kind of get locked in. One more thing on, you know, your first year, we'll move on from there. I want to talk to you, if you can recall your first time you took the mound to go uh, throw a pitch for the Beavers. Yeah, I was in, uh, I don't remember who it was against, but I, um, we were in surprise and I remember our coaches weren't afraid to play us young, young bucks. Like we, they threw us right in the fire. Um, they were like, you know what, you guys are going to, you guys are going to help us out. I'm pretty sure Dallas Buck came out of the bullpen first, um, as a freshman. And then it was either myself or Jonah Nickerson came out second. I don't remember who we played, but yeah, it was fun. Like I was fairly nervous, you know, I was like, man, this is like, this is the big time. Like this isn't little boy baseball, you know, this is, this is the pac 10. Um, but it was weird. I just, again, I felt comfortable. Like after I got through kind of came in relief, I remember warming up in the bullpen in right field and we were at the big league stadium, spring training stadium. So I remember coming through, you know, the right field fence. And, um, I just, from that day, I just, I always felt like I belonged. And I think that's like a huge piece to it. Um, is not doubting like, Oh, am I good enough to be here? You know, I, I felt like I was, um, it was just a matter of, of getting some time on the mountain and, and being comfortable with it. I'm pretty sure I had a good inning. Um, I don't remember so long ago, but I remember it being a lot of fun, which was pretty cool. So moving on, you know, you, you get your first year under your belt and, and so on. But I noticed that, uh, did you wear number six your first year? Yeah. Why number six? Was that something that you're just given or was there something special about number six? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, um, this goes back to when I was high school, I used to always be number three. Um, I wore number three in basketball and I wore number three in baseball, um, all growing up. That was kind of my number. Um, when I got to central Catholic as a freshman, I actually made, um, the freshman team. And thankfully for mother nature, that, that was one of the turning points in my career. Um, the first like week and a half to two weeks of the season got rained out. Uh, we had nothing, um, from, the varsity team all the way down to freshmen uh, didn't play a single game. And so varsity got overloaded and obviously they're going to make up their games well before JV and freshmen. And so our head coach, Jeremy Beard, who's now the head coach at um, uh, down at uh, Bakersfield, um, Cal Bakersfield. I remember him going to my brother who's a senior and said, Hey, we need some pitching. Like there's no way we're going to be able to get through three or four games, four games. I think it was like four games. In one week we had five games in order to kind of get caught up. I'm like, do you think your brother could come in and fill in for a game? And he was like, yeah, I, I, my brother can handle it mentally. He's like, he just, he's not very big. And he goes, that's fine. I just want to know if he can handle like varsity baseball. And he goes, I think he'll be okay. And so I don't even remember who they, who I pitched against. Um, but I ended up throwing a three hit shutout and that was the number I was on freshman and I think I had number three and I went to varsity literally like we were getting on the bus and they just threw me a jersey and it was six. And so, um, that number just 
stuck with me all the way through high school and college. Well, excellent. Uh, now moving on. So you go into your, your second year, how, how is it starting to feel like from your first year playing at OSU? What was, what was that next, next year? Like I just experience of understanding the daily schedule, um, had a way better understanding just of how fall was going to look. You know, when you go my freshman year, I didn't know how fall ball was going to look. And so I had a really good idea of, of how fall ball was run and then what we did in the wintertime, what winter break was like. That was a big adjustment freshman year was just you go home for a month, you know, and so you got to make sure you stay in shape. So just clear understanding of how to kind of navigate through a calendar year. From a, a pitching standpoint, nothing changed. Um, my role slightly adjusted. Uh halfway through my freshman year and so I went from being a long reliever to a closer and so going into my my sophomore year I knew that I was um, going to be our closer and so um, my preparation didn't change it was just maybe comfort knowing exactly how the full calendar year worked um, you know being a student athlete what uh, what year do you think you had your best stuff at Oregon State uh, gosh it's a good question I think both my I think my both my sophomore and junior year um, I think there's stretches maybe in all three years, certain stretches throughout that everything was clicking. I'd say that my junior year, um, I felt like I was, um, I felt like I was pretty dialed for a really long portion of the year. Um, I failed plenty of times. I have no problem admitting it. Um, you know, I, I blew a handful of games. It's part of the deal. And um, sometimes you go through and um, you just don't have your best stuff. And just have my best stuff. And so especially in a, in a conference where your margin for error is just so small. I didn't have the luxury of, I didn't have the luxury of, of having, you know, a hit or two where I could be off. Like if I was off, like we lose the game, you know? And so, um, gosh, I had a stretch. I remember my junior year that I just, I just felt like I was dialed. You know, and it was just um, everything was just clicking from outing to outing. And I throw multiple times, two, three times in a weekend. Um, I just felt felt really, really good. I mean, you still hold the records. I mean, how meaningful is that to you, you know, with the saves and and, and all the records that you hold? Yeah, I mean, I'm proud um, to have them. I definitely would not have them without my teammates. You know, I mean, our starting pitching was so good. And our defense was so good and our offense obviously got us leads. And so, I mean, really without those guys, my, my records are nothing, you know? And so I am proud of them. Um, a lot of hard work went into um, having the success that I have, but again, my team, my team made so many good plays around me and saved so many games for me and had good coaches and our catchers were good. And I mean, it really, it really was a team effort. Um, I always say like with team success comes, you know, the individual accolades. Um, it's cool to have them. I know that and my, my saves record may get broken this year by um, Jake Mulholland, which, you know what, I hope he does, you know, records are meant to be broken. And, and I had a good run there for three years. You know, it was, it was a lot of fun and those memories that definitely will, will be able to cherish forever and be able to share with my two boys. And they're starting to get a bit, you know, gain a little better understanding when we go down to games that, um, you know, dad has, a banner that hangs outside the stadium and that dad pitched at the stadium. And those are the cool things for me. Well, I mean, you're amazing 2006 season for that team uh, and, and going to, you know, this college world series 
and then winning it. What switched for your team from 2005 to 2006 to like, know like, Hey, we can do this and we're going to get up over that hump. What was, what do you think was switched between those two years? I think it went back. It went back to our freshman year. Um, we always would have team goals um, and we would, you know, hash out conference goals and we'd hash, hash out kind of long-term uh, bigger goals. And I think for a long time, um, there's a lot of talented baseball players that had gone through Oregon state, but I just, they just, I don't think could quite get over the hump um, and just really, really get through that kind of stigma of just being, you know, Oregon state, I would just kind of go through and um, you know, I know like teams down South just kind of, look down on them, you know, and there's so many good baseball players that have gone through Oregon State. I think we just changed the culture of, of, you know, we're not, no poor me here, you know, because we have bad weather. Um, we're just, like I said earlier, we're just, we were gritty, gritty baseball players. Um, and we believed in ourselves and we knew um, in a non cocky way that we were good. Um, there was that stretch, like I said, a couple classes ahead of me and then my class and then below me that, some talented baseball players luck of the draw that we were all uh for the most part all ended up at Oregon State but um I just think we believe we believe that we could do it you know and we believed um and we we showed that we could compete with the best teams in the country we competed with teams that were outside um, every single day in, in the sunny weather states we didn't care where we were from um we just were good baseball players um and we played like a team and that was a big part. We accepted our roles. And as hard as it is, it's just there's only one shortstop and only one second baseman. And there's one at each position. And we just accepted our role. And the hitters accepted their role in the, in the lineup. And I think once we we were in conference and we could just – we just beat up on teams, you know. And people are like, gosh, like this, these guys are really, really good, you know. And so we knew we could compete in the Pac-10. We could compete with anybody in the country. Um, and that was just our mentality. We just – we had a very – workmanlike business approach to it. We had a ton of fun off the field. Like if you saw us at some of the practices, Casey hated sometimes the way we we were in practice. But when the lights came on and the, and the lines were chalked, we flipped the switch to immediate work mode. Um, and that was really, really fun. We could have, we had a blast and we'd play pranks on each other 20 minutes before the games. We'd be having a good time. Um, gosh, but when that, national anthem played and we ran out on the field it was the craziest thing we just went into like you know what for three hours we're just going to be so absolutely dominant um and we just never lit up on the gas pedal we just that's the approach that we took um my entire time there what's one pc prank that you still remember to this day that you would just think about oh. and just start laughing hysterically about i gotta hear a story oh my gosh i'm gonna share two um one involving myself and then one of uh, something else, but um, sure, go ahead. We had um, my freshman year. We had a catcher um, named Paul Ritchie. He was from Kelso, Washington, and he was he didn't mess with Paul. Like he would be the first to to put you on your rear end, and, and he was a guy that you just didn't mess with. Like he was tough, nice guy, but he was tough. So they're like, "Hey, Gundy," like because I was the smallest in the team. We had a shoe bin that you know you pull up, and you can put your shoes down, and like you should hide hide down in Richie's um, shoe bin and then we'll have a code word. And so when he comes to his locker, jump out and scare him. And I'm like, oh, I think it's a great idea. Right. Knowing deep down. And I remember before I got in, I was like, Hey, as soon as Richie rears back to knock me out, 
um, somebody grab him and Pulsewaite, Jake Pulsewaite, who's one of the seniors that took me under his wing, like, we got you. Like, we won't let Paul hit you. Um, Paul's tough. Um, I wouldn't want to get hit by Paul. <laughs> and so I get down in there and we do a code word and I jump out and sure enough, Paul's like, son of a, you know, and he's just rearing back. He wasn't going to hit me, but um, he got scared. And Paul normally doesn't never get scared, but I, I did spook him on that. One last one it was pretty funny. Um, sophomore year, uh, Jacoby Ellsbury's junior year, ESPN was, um, during the week was there to do like a pre-draft interview, an article on Jacoby. And so Anton Maxwell, who was a left, another left-handed pitcher from Alaska, um, was extremely gullible um, and went for a handful of different pranks. But this one was pretty funny. So we we're like, hey, we were just kind of in the joke joking moods were like Jacoby's down in the dugout with ESPN doing this full interview. I mean, they got cameras and all this sorts of stuff. And so Anton comes in the clubhouse for practice and we're like, Hey, um, ESPN is here. And we were like ranked top 10 or top five in the country. So it kind of made sense. Maybe ESPN was just doing a story on us. So we told Anton to, um, to get fully dressed, full uniform because ESPN wanted to do an interview with him. And so he's like, camper and he's getting his clothes changed and he goes in the mirror and he's like poofing his jersey out he's like how, how do i look guys and i'm like good hurry up there you're up next you know and like and he's like oh who else is gone like oh jacoby's down there and, and dallas like yeah i've already gone a couple other guys already gone so he goes down we kind of follow him and our old dugout you know our old clubhouse came out from um that had stairs that went down um a lot different than what the new one is and so we're like peeking around and Anton walks down and you could hear him go up. Hi, I'm uh, Anton Maxwell. I'm here, left-handed pitcher. I'm here for my interview. And they're like, <laughs> the interview lady, she's like, um, we're not interviewing you. We're just doing an interview on the <laughs> And he comes running back up. And I can't say what he said, but he was so mad, like fuming, so embarrassed of stories from my three years there that that and goes back to we're just really good friends. Um, the whole team, we just we got along so well. Um, we grew up playing with each other and against each other, so it was um, it was just like we we'd been around each other the whole time. That is hilarious. Those are two good stories. What you got for us, Travis? Well, I just I I think we could talk about the World Series and have a whole podcast about that. But can you just give us your favorite memory of that? event i mean that was such a huge event in oregon um you know just just give us something just one story about um something that happened and and just so we can live vicariously through you yeah you know the the entire world series itself was um was just one big story you know it was we were there for 13 days 12 or 13 days um, we obviously got on a really good run after getting beat the first day. Um, I remember we were in a rain delay against Miami the first game. And I remember in the, we went in the clubhouse and we were hanging out. I mean, they, they absolutely annihilated us 11 to one. And for some reason there was like a bracket that was a printed bracket that was laying on the floor in our clubhouse. And I remember sitting there with a handful of guys and we we're looking at the bracket. We're like, we're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to have to, we're going to have to fight a little bit, you know, because the bracket now is way different. They have more off days. It's still grueling to get through, but there's more off days. We had played one off day and then played four straight, had one off day and then played three in a row um, to win it. And so um, I remember that time that was, 
looking at that bracket with him and my teammates were like, man, because we, the game was nearly over. It was like the eighth inning. We're down 11-1. Likelihood of us coming back um, in that stretch was was highly unlikely. So, um, I mean, obviously the, the best memory for myself um, and for my teammates is is the final out. Um, the Watching the replay, um, it's pretty cool. Like the ball is hit and the camera view from um, behind up high above our dugout and the third base dugout. Um, and right as you, right as Tyler Graham catches the ball, like the entire left side of the stands were all Oregon State fans above our dugout, and you just see everybody jump up. Um, that was obviously a pretty cool moment. Um, not just because I was on the mound, but um, just a really cool shot, you know, and it shows like how exciting they play the replay, and you can hear almost like a pin drop. And then all of a sudden, right when he catches it, he literally is massive, massive. Work. Um, and so that's, uh, again, the, yeah, like you said, we could spend the whole show on, on just talking about the entire World Series and the experience of the World Series. Um, opening ceremonies uh, in Omaha is, if you don't get goosebumps for that, I don't know what would get you goosebumps. Um, I mean, they announce all the teams. They do this cool fireworks show. and. Um, it's just they Omaha does it right. Let me put it that way. They really do a good job. Yeah, this is my last question about OSU. Um, it it concerns the coaching staff, and you know, you as a mentor, as a teacher, and as a coach. Now, you have a you can look at this from a different perspective, and as and also as a, a leader of young men and and ball players. Talk to me about something from a leadership standpoint that you can reflect upon now that you think that you, in a way, from the coaching staff at Oregon State when you were there. Yeah, they were, um, they were so extremely, in my opinion, were so extremely fair as far as um, how they went about everything. They had, um, they were tough on us, um, but they were very fair. Um, they held us to very high standards, um, but they were very fair. Um, they just, they commanded respect. Um, and we definitely did respect them, um, as our coaches, um, and leaders, um, Pat, as everybody knows is, um, a phenomenal leader. Um, he knew the right time to, um, kind of get on us and he knew the right time to kind of deliver that that speech that really got us going internally. Um, I just liked our approach. I just liked, um, we kind of took a noble attitude and it was um, very workmanlike approach. And that's kind of how we approach game time. Um, we prepared very, very well, even though we had fun. Um, we did a phenomenal job and our coaches did a phenomenal job of preparing us um, for the absolute toughest of situations. Um, and, you know, like I said, they, they, uh, they didn't get on us if we weren't screwing off. Um, there's a couple of times where practices, you know, ended early because we weren't focused and that was our, our fault. Um, we ended up paying the price, um, from a conditioning standpoint, but it was something that we needed. Um, but like I said, they weren't big yellers and screamers in my opinion. Um, I just think they were very well aware of the talent that we had. 
Um, and they did a really good job of, of getting it all out of us. So do you take that into your training, what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always tell the kids that I train, like, um, and this is how, at least I took it when I was at Oregon state was, um, the only reason I would ever get mad or fired up at a kid is if, um, they have poor effort, um, or they're screwing around. Um, I tell kids all the time, you're going to fail. You're going to fail a lot more times than you succeed. This is a very challenging sport. So, um, my approach with the kids that I train is, um, you know, I, I'm intense with them. Um, but I, we also have fun. Um, and that's the most important piece is the game. And for the high school kids and younger kids that I train, like nobody's getting paid to play. Um, and so, um, I always say effort, effort and attitude, you know, two things that, that are so easily controllable. Um, and guys know, like if I get on them in the facility is only because of those two things, that's it, you know? And so they know they could have a really bad day from a throwing standpoint, um, which is all part of the learning process. Um, but I'm still going to, you know, love on, love on them just as much as if they go out and, you know, hit every spot in a, in a bullpen or go out and dominate a game. And, um, and I think the kids appreciate that, you know, they, they, they know that, um, I'm there for them. Um, and most importantly, I'm there for them when they are struggling, uh, when they need it the most. And that's, you know, kind of what I recognized when I was at Oregon state was, um, our coaches were quick to, to make sure, you know what, um, we need you. Um, we believe in you and, and, um, you know, get back on track cause, um, we're going to get you back out there next game. You're drafted in 2006 in the fifth round by the, uh, the Atlanta Braves. Uh, can you tell us where you were at when you found out that you were drafted in the fifth round by the Braves and what that experience felt like? Yeah, I was, yep. I was in my, um, apartment, Crystal Lake apartments in South Corvallis. Um, we had, uh, almost, well, not almost our entire team, but we had a lot of guys that lived out in that apartment complex. So, um, that was a very fun day because, um, Dallas Buck had gotten drafted and Cole got drafted in the third round. And then, um, you know, I had went in the fifth round and then Jonah Nickerson was my roommate. So he was with me and he went up going two rounds later. And so, um, yeah, I was just at my apartment and draft is so much different than it is now. Um, I was on my computer and you just kind of hear Braves called me and said, Hey, we're going to take you with our, with our pick in the, in the fifth round. And then you hear your name called on the computer and have another conversation. That was kind of that. So it's probably a quick whirlwind once, you know, your college season had ended and then you go and then you're, you're, you're with the Braves. Um, what was that? you know, that jump from, uh, college now to playing, uh, at a, at a much higher professional level for you. Yeah, that was a big, uh, that was a lot bigger jump for me than from high school to college. The college to pro was, um, was an even bigger jump. I went, um, from being pretty comfortable, um, living in, in Corvallis and being around the same essentially the same teammates for three years, guys that I knew to basically going and not knowing a single person. So, uh, I flew out to Danville, Virginia, um, and was there for a little over a week and then got moved up. Um, so Danville was, um, short season rookie ball. So it was kind of equivalent to Salem volcanoes, um, or the emeralds. Um, so I was there for a little over a week and up getting moved up to uh, Rome, Georgia, which was low A, and met the team on the road. Um, and so, again, I met these guys in, in Danville. Um, 
got to know them and was out and I was at another team and I met with them on the road, which is a lot different because then, you know, you're just going right into it. So it's just like you got a roommate on the road who you have no, no idea who he is. Um, and on the bus, we were in Kannapolis, um, North Carolina for a few games and we were on a bus ride back to Rome and you get three nights in a hotel. Um, when you get moved up, moved down, you get three nights in a hotel. And then after that, um, you got to find your own place to live. So not only are you focusing on trying to focus on baseball, um, but now you're trying to focus on where am I going to lay my head at night? Um, and so I just connected with um, the Braves fourth round pick right before me out of Georgia tech. He was like, Hey man, we don't got much. We got a two bedroom apartment. Do you want to, he was from Atlanta. So he was pretty close to Rome. So he's like, my parents can bring you an air bed. If you guys, if you want to sleep in our, in our living room, basically. And so I finished out the summer um, living with him and one of our catchers and in, in their living room of their apartment. So, um, yeah, just so drastically different. I had an apartment in Corvallis with the same roommate for three years, um, just got very, very comfortable and, and, um, and like my, my situation there. And then just, it just changed a lot. And you made it all the way up to triple a, correct? Mm-hmm. What was that experience going like from going from short season single A to moving up to triple A? How is how is it different at each level for you? I just gets harder and harder. <laughs> I show my kids that I train, like it's just it's a pyramid, you know, like down the bottom of youth baseball. And then as you climb, it's just you're just facing better and better players. Um you know, it was uh my routines and different things like that. Um those never change. You know, you, you find different things and here and there that you may add, you know, to your routine or you subtract it. But from a baseball standpoint, just the quality of, of baseball, you know, um, just difficult, you know, um, you're facing guys that, that can hit and guys that can play. And kind of the golden rule um, is if you can perform in double A, perform at a high level in double A, you can play in the big leagues. Triple um, A for me was um, a lot of, um, kind of guys that had bounced back and forth between um, the big leagues in AAA. And so maybe some veteran laden guys that um, had been around the game a little bit longer, um, maybe guys that even had families, um, different things like that. And AA for me was um, prospects. You know, it was the young up and coming studs, the guys that, you know, hit for me facing between double and triple a the biggest difference was just discipline um hitters in double a are very very good but they swing a little bit more uh, i wouldn't say reckless but they're a little bit more free swinging like if you make a mistake um they're hitting it um and sometimes in triple a they may set you up a little bit differently you know you may throw a pitch right down the middle and they don't swing um and you're like gosh in double a they swing at every single one of those pitches down the middle um so just the approach as far as how to kind of navigate through. But again, that's where you fall back on your coaches and you fall back on um, your catcher and your teammates to kind of help you. And you pick it up pretty quick. There's just margin for error at those levels is so small. Um, it just, it can just chew you up and spit you out so fast without you even realizing it. And so it's just, um, you're going to have bad games, but it's just kind of, navigating through the process and it's a long year it's 142 games um with very few off days and a, and a lot of travel um on buses um triple a we flew a little bit more but um sometimes you know in double a you're you have a 10-hour bus ride and you got a game the next night 
you know, and, and I was in a position as a reliever where I was very few days where I was like down, down where they're like, you're off today. Um, so from a mental standpoint, I always had to be ready to pitch because unlike Oregon state where I'd come in for an inning or two in pro ball, there would be games where I'd come in for a single left-handed batter. And then my name was over. And then the next night I would throw an inning and then I'd have a day off and then I would throw to two batters. And so it just, it, it was always ever changing and they were doing it. Um, I never made it to the big leagues, but um, from what conversation I had, they were doing it in lieu. If I made it to the big leagues and I would be comfortable with coming in to face a single batter at a time or two batters or one inning. Did your uncle get a chance to go watch you play a few times at least? Yeah. Yeah. And we were all on, um, all the Braves minor league stops were all on the East coast. Um, but yeah, he was able to, to come out and watch and, um, you know, obviously be, you know, massive support system. He was just always the one I could call him. And if I was off, he knew exactly what I was doing. Um, we were kind of a mirror image of each other. And so it was nice just to even connect with him on the phone and, and just chat with him and ask different questions if, if something came up. So you made it as high as AAA. Do you feel, I mean, how do you feel about not making it to the major leagues? Do you feel like, you, you know, you were let, you let yourself down or do you feel like, Hey, I had a, I had a great run, you know, between high school, college, and then playing professionally that I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish as a athlete. Yeah, I was, I was good with it. You know, I, I felt like I had a good run. I, I just tell people like, that's not me to make it. I just wasn't good enough. You know, like um, I was close. Um, it was a lot of fun. Um, I made a lot of friendships and a ton of memories and um, had a lot of success and traveled the world to play baseball um, sure. I would have loved to even have that one day, um, you know, non-spring training, big leagues, you know, uh, you know, regular season, big leagues. Yeah. It would have been unbelievable. Um, but I don't have any regrets. You know, I just, uh, at the end of the day, um, I feel lucky enough just with what I had that I was able to make it so far. You know, I, I wasn't physically imposing. Um, I, you know, grinded my way through every single level that I, that I was lucky enough to play at. And, um, at the end of the day, I yeah, would have been cool, but you know what? Um, I made it pretty far, uh, and I'm proud of that. So who were some memorable hitters that you faced in the, in the minors when you played? You know, so, so two guys, um, so I was lucky enough to, to pitch in a handful of big league spring training games. Um, and one of my first spring training games, I faced Prince Fielder. And I remember I got him out and grounded out to first base on a pitch that I've never thrown in my entire life uh, from a location standpoint. Um, Brian McCann was catching. Brian McCann actually caught both of the two hitters I'm talking about. Um, Brian McCann called an inside slider to Prince Fielder. And I threw from a low three-quarter arm slot. And so trying to like – and this is like – this is going through my head like quick. Like he call, he goes like, he goes like three inside. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he's calling for an inside slider. And so I'm trying to figure out a way like quickly, I'm going to have to start this ball behind him. Um, but I'm thinking like, okay, worst case, I'm just going to hit him because um, I'm not leaving the ball middle of the plate against Prince Fielder. Um, my, 
the grace of God, I executed the pitch and he grounded out to first base. Um, and I remember them throwing the ball around the horn and just like my back was turned, was turned to home plate. I, I was kind of laughing under my breath. I was like, what in the world was that pitch? You know, from a location standpoint, but that's what they did in the big leagues. They just, they called pitches that exploited guys' weaknesses. And obviously there was a hole in that part of his swing with that certain pitch that Brian McCann knew. And luckily I executed it. Another guy, uh, Victor Martinez had a phenomenal career switch hitter. Um, he was with the Indians at the time. Um, I got him to, I got him to ground out to third on a two seam fastball way. Um, that was pretty fun. I, you know, it's sad. I, I was lucky enough to face so many hitters over, over the years. Those two names stand out um, the most. Um, but I know for, for a fact, like if I go through box scores or just rosters of uh, players in minor leagues, I, I know for a fact that I face guys that are in the big leagues right now. Um, we had some good teams growing up or when I was coming through the system. Like I played with Freddie Freeman and Jason Hayward and Craig Kimbrell, Johnny Ventures. We are all, um, we are all on the same team. Um, we, ha- we were stacked. Um, but that was fun to play with those guys. Um, cause you knew that, you know, those guys were going to be, you know, big time, big leaguers, um, you know, down the road. So after you, uh, left a uh, professional ball, you ended up going and, uh, taking a couple different things, but, uh, you, you went in to be a pitching coach with, uh, Westland high school. So, uh, talk to us a little bit about that experience and what got you into coaching uh, high school ball. Yeah, that was fun. Um, you know, I was at the baseball for a few years and, um, I still was doing instruction and, uh, I actually applied for the head job, um, and I didn't get it. Um, I was a finalist for it. The guy that ended up getting it reached out to me and asked if I, I want to come on board to coach. And, um, so I, I was there for three years and it was an absolute blast. I loved it. Um, I, I, I just love getting the kids prepared for the season. I love in season stuff. Um, yeah, we had, we had a great, a great three years. We, um, team hadn't been in the playoffs in a number of years. First year, um, ended up losing the second round. And then second year we lost in the state championship game, actually, uh, to Sheldon two to one, uh, Justin Herbert pitched against us, um, which is crazy, um, to see where he is now. And then, uh, my final year we lost actually to Herbert again, um, in the quarterfinals, um, down in Sheldon. So it was fun. So you were a high school coach at Westland, you know, you did everything you did in your accomplishments. And then, um, you, you founded the Gunderson, uh, pitching Academy. What, what made you want to decide to do, to do that, to, you know, start something and, and focus in on, on baseball from that perspective? Yes. My, my journey, um, actually started in 2007 when I was still playing, um, right after I got drafted, um, Kathy Marshall, longtime um, news anchor, um, in Portland here, she, had reached out and asked if I want to do a couple lessons, um, one off season down at the Mac club. And then that kind of, um, pushed over to, um, meeting some folks over at what was at the time was called Metro baseball Academy. And so I was doing, um, started doing lessons in the off season, just as fun and a little bit of supplemental income. Uh, cause I wasn't making hardly any money in the minor leagues. And so each year, each off season, I come home, I started to kind of grow, um, a, bigger and bigger clientele list. And then every year I had to say goodbye and um, say, I'll see you guys back in, in the late fall and in the winter time. And so um, 
in 2014, um, I had been a couple years out of pro ball and I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of at a crossroads. I'm either going to continue to just do lessons or, you know, I need to get in the real world and get a job. And I actually applied for a few jobs at Nike and, um, got interviews and, and, and ended up not getting the job. But, um, in 2014, I was like, you know what? I told my wife, I was like, I, I think I, you know, we can make this a business. And so I, um, I kind of took the leap of faith and, and jumped out in the deep end and, and went on my own and um, been very, very blessed to have built up a, a very, very strong clientele base and a very strong following. And uh, I just love teaching kids. And I, I love, obviously love baseball and I love pitching, um, but I love the connection with the kids that I have. So for somebody that's listening that doesn't know anything about Gunderson baseball, you know, what, tell us, tell us uh, a little bit about where you are, what you do, what makes it mm-hmm. different. Share some space um, out in Westland um, with a facility called the Bat Company. One of my good friends, Scott Ackerman, owns the Bat Company. They have um, mainly have softball teams. They, they train and, and then have softball teams. Um, what makes me unique is um, I am primarily 95% of it. I'm um, all pitching based. Most academies uh, in the Portland area, Portland, Vancouver area are um, kind of team based academies. They have training, um, but they main central focus is is around their teams for spring summer and then fall so um i do occasionally have um a high school age summer group one or two teams in the summertime um very small teams that really aren't my focus so pitching all the way from you know nine eight nine years old um all the way up through high school uh and then um starting to grow a bigger base of of college kids when they come home in the off season um kids that i've trained that are now in college um, or in pro ball then come back and train. So it's, um, it's nice, nice little niche of the market of just being able to focus in my opinion on, on one of the most important positions on the field. And um, we go through everything from mental, mental training to, you know, off speed development to delivery work to just everything associated with pitching and, and then helping with recruiting as well. So with your Academy, what, you know, you said you're focusing on, on pitching, Tell us about like that pitching is like conditioning and like arm strength, uh, I'm sure velocity, and I'm sure many different things, but what, you know, what, what are some, what are those things that you're working on and and preaching to these, these athletes? Yeah. So um, again, going back to my playing days, being very um, routine based and process oriented. Um, so we go through um, how to properly warm up, um, and then how to properly take care of our bodies after we throw. And I always say it's, you know, 70 to 80% of what we do is what you do before you throw and what you do after, you know, the, the throwing pieces is just the bonus. Um, so many kids, we we're, we're in a, an era now of velocity, you know, and everybody wants to throw hard, um, even when their bodies, um, aren't ready for them to throw hard. And, you know, you start to see these massive spikes and, and injuries, and, and that's a whole other topic because there's there's a lot of other reasons other than just kids, you know, trying to throw the ball as hard as they possibly can. So um, I try and train like the the whole, the entire pitcher. So how do we warm up? And every kid's different, you know. I, I take don't take a cookie cutter approach to it. We have different warm up protocols that kids kind of it's like a grab bag. Kids find different things they like, and then they and then they go through their own individual routine to get themselves ready to throw. And then there's um pre-throwing drills that we do um before they go into playing catch um teaching kids how to long toss you know how to play catch at a further distance 
to safely build up, you know, arm and hand speed and, and a little bit of strength. And then, and then there's kind of the delivery work portion of things. Um, I'm massively big on, um, making sure kids are athletic. Um, I don't actually use the word mechanics, um, inside with the kids because I feel like, you know, associate with mechanics as being, you know, robotic movers. Um, so on my big whiteboard I have in the facility, I have move, movement over mechanics. So we do a lot of movement based stuff and it's really for the individual because everyone's bodies are so different from, you know, an anatomy standpoint, guys, some have tight hips and some have tight ankles and different things like that. So it's, it's fun. You know, it's, um, for me, it's more mentally draining because every kid is so different and every kid you can take a different approach to from a mental standpoint, how you communicate with them. I'm really, really big on, it's a two-way street for communication. Um, I, I want my athletes to communicate with me more than I communicate with them. Um, I don't want to just give them all the answers um, because then they become 100% dependent on me and they need me every single step of the way. And so I want them to communicate what they like. I want them to communicate what they don't like. Um, I always tell them like the more information I have from you, the better I can assist you um, in what you need to be successful. And so uh, again, it, I've fostered a very competitive training environment, but I've also fostered an environment where they feel like they have a voice um, and they don't feel like I'm going to just get on them if I don't like the fact that I don't like a specific, you know, movement or drill that we do. Um, I have a lot of different ways that I can teach. Um, blessed have been doing it for going on 14 years now. And so, you know, every kid just needs some different love, you know, and, and that's uh, the fun day-to-day process with them, especially seeing their growth and excitement. I just had a kid tonight um, throw in front of a, a handful of pro scouts and um, he hit 95 and, you know, he was, he's pretty fired up. So if I'm a young athlete and I'm like, Hey, I want to, I'm listening to to Kevin. And I think that, you know, maybe his program's right for me. What's the best way to kind of get a hold of you and, and how can I go about that process of, of being a part of your, your Academy? Yeah. You can submit a request form on, um, on our website, um, bettendersonbaseball.com. Um, there's just a little section you can submit a, submit a form. Um, I'm very blessed, very, very blessed on a daily basis. I have, um, a lot of kids that I have the ability to train and I'm starting to grow a team around me to kind of assist in the process. Cause I have two young boys who are five and eight and, you know, they want dad at home and they want dad to coach them. And, and so, um, I just can't be in the facility 24 seven, like I used to. Uh, and so we run camps throughout the year. Um, we do a lot of small group stuff, small enough where kids get a lot of attention, not too big where they, they get kind of drowned out um, with all the bodies. But that really allows us to um, have a greater impact um, on the amount of kids that are reaching out. I know this the year, 2019 COVID was a little bit crazy with, with the ma- massive shutdown this past year, but I saw about 320 kids um, come through in 2019. And so, you know, each year I've just kind of grown and, and now I'm very lucky to um, have built a connection with some kids in Washington and California and uh, in Arizona and New Mexico. And so um, my reach is, is starting to get beyond this area and it's just a lot of fun. There's just, it's, it's really fun to be able to see kids get better, but most importantly have fun while doing it. 
going to have to imagine a godsend for a lot of these kids who, you know, you're the only place where they could really train this last off season, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that there's a lot of, there's other facilities and different things like that, but from just a pure like pitching standpoint, they just, that's all we focus on. I don't talk to them about hitting, fielding, none of that stuff. Like they come there and um, they have one goal and one goal only. It's just to walk and they walk in the door and they leave the door. They just, they're a better pitcher for that single day. And the group stuff typically do about uh, groups of four kids and we can, we make it really competitive and it's fun to see that internal competitiveness. Um, you don't quite get that in a one-on-one setting. I do think there's benefits of one-on-ones, but it's um, when you put the top dogs um, against the other top dogs, um, they compete and they compete hard. And so when they get on the field, typically they're like, Oh, we just did it all winter. We, we had velocity days or we had command days or we had different, con- you know, we do games where two on two, one on one on one on one. And so they got to compete with each other and, talk some smack and um again it's it's a really really cool environment people have made comments like it's different now right now during covid with limiting the number of bodies and different people that we have coming through the facility but um and kind of pre-covid kids would just hang out for hours you know they train with me for an hour and a half to two hours and then they would just want to stick around and hang out because their next group of kids are their buddies and they want to hang out with them and pretty soon there's just kids floating all around um and that's like comments from pro scouts and stuff like that. Like the environment inside of our facility is electric. Um, the music's going and it's just kids want to be there. And that's the great thing is no, nobody's being forced to come in there by their parents. Like they like love to come in there. Well, excellent. Well, we really, really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about your career from high school to collegiate to playing pro ball. And then, uh, where you're at now. Um, and uh, you could check them out at Gunderson, spelled G U N D E R S O N. You can find them, Gunderson. Is it Gunderson Baseball? Baseball.com. Yeah. yeah. So GundersonBaseball.com. You can find them there. Uh, but Kevin, really, really um, just a great interview. And thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us on the, uh, this episode. Yeah. Thank you so much. What's going on, podcast family? Ben here for Devo Bag Company. Rooted in eastern Washington, Devo uses nothing but the highest quality maple, ash, birch on the market. You know what? It makes a difference. At Devo Bats, they take pride in the craftsmanship that goes into each and every wooden bat produced. Your success at the plate is their ultimate priority. They want you to know when you think of bats, Think of Devo Bats. Devo Bats, your Northwest supplier of affordable quality wooden bats. Hey 
Hey podcast fam, it's Ben here from my friends over at Baseballism. Founded by four former college baseball players and teammates, their love and passion for the game did not stop after leaving the playing field. An amazing organization founded on the beliefs of class, tradition, and the history of baseball. I personally shop at Baseballism because of the quality of their products and the top of the line customer service I get each and every time. Take it from me, an avid hat lover. Baseballism is not your run of the mill apparel company. Check them out at any of their fine locations or visit them online at baseballism.com. Baseballism built for the love of the game.